My goal this morning is to do a, a couple different things. One is to, uh, of course, preach on Psalm 79 and give a reflection on that. My other goal is to give a bit of a testimony to start here uh, about my experience at the Challenge Conference. I know many of you were praying for me this last week because I got the honor of uh, teaching some classes at the Challenge Conference and also speaking at uh, the last main session there. Uh, so I want to share a little bit about that and in my um, mind the uh, reflections on Psalm 79 are shorter to make room for this, but we'll see. You know, on paper it looks shorter, we'll see if I preach shorter once we get into the sermon. But let me share a little bit uh, about what happened this last week and just what God did. If you're unfamiliar, by the way, uh, Challenge Conference is the youth conference that our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church, does every other summer, and um, this summer they have it, and another couple of years they'll have another one. And I've never been to it before. This is the first time I've been to it, and my kids have been to it. My wife ha grew up going to Challenge, uh, so she had some familiarity with it. I did not, and it was a busy, busy couple weeks. Uh, our family did some vacation, so we were up in Grand Marais where it was a high of like 59 degrees, and then shortly after that made our way down to Kansas City where it was the opposite of that. It was, it was quite swampy down there in terms of heat and humidity. The weather was great, barbecue was good. That's really my summary of uh, Kansas City. Uh, so a couple of things that they had me do, one was teaching these things called equipping labs, which are, you know, there's roughly 100 students that would come to these things, and you teach on some topics to get them to think deeply about things for about uh, 90 minutes, and I did back-to-back -back, uh, classes on that for two different days. The first day, uh, spent three hours talking about cancel culture. Uh, the second day, I spent three hours talking about politics, and then the main talk that I gave was on suffering, so I only touched on light subjects the entire time I was there. Just, just the easy lifting ones is the ones I was focusing on. It was really funny because uh, after I taught the first class, uh, I remember being in the elevator and one of the kids that was in my class was there with me and he's kind of looking at me like, I know this guy, and then finally gets uh, uh, enough bravery to say something right before he leaves and he goes, hey, you're the cancel culture guy. And I'm like, no, I'm not like the, I'm not the cancel culture guy. I taught about cancel culture and tried to shine the light of the gospel on it, but that's, that's what I did. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a youth conference. It's very different than, than Sunday morning vibes here. Very, very, very different. I mean, I remember this time right before the main session was going to start, they had this countdown that happened, and then once they reached zero, they rickrolled you from the video screen up the front, and there's like fog machines, there's lights. Yes, like I diss fog machines all the time, and they were there. Uh, this, that, was the, that was the atmosphere of this place. Uh, but the big event, of course, was speaking at the main stage. I got to do the, the closing talk, and there was all these great, great preachers, and we're all working our way through First Peter. And this was, this was, I've never experienced anything like this before. The last time I spoke uh, to a crowd that was above 1,000 was back in my Northwestern days when I was uh, a student council there, and I got to essentially intern for the campus pastor, so I got to speak at the chapels there a couple different times. And, and I remember those talks because I bombed them. They were awful. Like, I was just getting acquainted with public speaking. I still was very much dealing with stage fright. And so uh, thinking about going onto a stage where there's 3,200 youth in a downtown convention center auditorium, 
I wasn't quite sure how that was going to go. Um, and it's one of those things where like, I was just wondering because I haven't had anything like this um, in my uh, experience in the recent years that I've been doing ministry. I just wondered like, would that fear come back? Would I get stage fright again? I even remember uh, during uh, a couple of the other talks, there was a preacher that just had this amazing uh, close to his message where he was sharing the gospel using imagery from comics so that the students could marvel at the gospel. Yeah, and there was, and the whole thing was like that. And it was actually, it wasn't just, it wasn't just like dad jokes. It was actually pretty epic. It was really good. And so much so that one of my kids leans over to me and says, oh, dad, you have competition. <laughs> this is like a day into it. And just like, you're, you're, so you're wondering like, what's the approach? But I, I never felt competition. I never felt fear. I mean, it was just beautiful seeing the different ways that God uses different preachers to speak to the youth and knowing, knowing that he would also use me in the same way. And so at the last evening, I got to close, close up the place by preaching on the last bit of First Peter, and it was about suffering and finding a reward in the gospel as you go through suffering. So we talked about what caused suffering. I shared my own story specifically about my battle with cancer and some of the things that has happened the last couple of years to me and to us. Uh, and I remember going up there and just being thrilled for this opportunity. Like no fear, no sense of performance, just 3,200 youth, people from the next generation, eager to hear the gospel, and me eager just to give these, these kids that some of them have already experienced significant suffering. They've been through a pandemic and been booted out of their schools and isolated from their friends, and so they have experienced it, and they have probably unique experiences that they brought in that place, and then, of course, all the suffering that was going to come, just to be able to give them something of the gospel to continue to help them process what they've been through and to prepare for what's ahead. It was an absolute honor. I just loved it. It was so, so, so fun. So for those of you that were praying, thank you. Those prayers were heard, and uh, it was just such a blessing to be there. So that's my testimony from Challenge. I know that I have a ton of other illustrations that will probably make their way into sermons uh, in the future from that week, uh, but it was just such a blessing. So thank you so much for praying for that. Let's go ahead and pray for our time in the word now, and then turn to Psalm 79. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, the true understanding of your holy word helps us to grow into the fullness of salvation you freely offer in Christ. So grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from burdens of this present moment, may right now hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to the praise and honor of your holy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. These opening verses should cause you to ask the question, what happened and what is going on? Let me read them just so you can feel the force and the weightiness of these opening verses in Psalm 79. It says, O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have left the dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the sky, the flesh of your own people for animals of the wild. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem. 
and there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of contempt to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to, to those around us. That is an intense description. What happened? And theologically and spiritually, we know that God, God's people turned away from him and they have sinned. And this description is the judgment and the suffering resulting from that rebellious sin. And most commentators believe in the background of what's going on here. It's when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and then sent God's people into exile, that that's the background story of when this psalm uh, was either written or the event that it's reflecting on. And this nation, Babylon, this is not a nation that worships God. They are wicked and they don't know the Lord, yet they invaded the land, defiled the sacred temple, and turned the holy city of God into rubble. And they not only slaughter God's people, but they dehumanize them by even letting them just rot to death in the streets. This is a picture of the wicked tearing apart a sacred space and people. And there's a sense where I'm, I'm thinking about a passage and a description like this for our gathering today, and we don't experience this in any literal way unless you have come from a country or a background or experience where you have experienced war in the country you grew up in. So there's no sense that many of you here experience this in some type of literal way, but it can be applied in a general sense to churches and ministries being torn apart because of the sin of God's people. I think one of the major aspects of pastoral ministry that I've experienced in the last several years is ministering to those that have come from ministry ruins, have come from the rubble of churches that have fallen apart because of the sin of those churches, or maybe the sin of those leaders. It may have been a wolf that came and tore up the sheep in that church. It may be because of the sins of the church that resulted in the church becoming a pile of rubble. It could have been the double life of a ministry leader that gets exposed. But nonetheless, it's been a common experience to minister to people who have seen with their own eyes and experienced in their own lives a ministry being turned into a heap, into rubble. And if you're not there, there's a high likelihood that you might have friends and family or somebody in the future come into your life where that is their experience. And I think a psalm like this raises an important question. How do you respond if the sin of God's people has reduced a ministry to rubble? This psalm is the example, not the example, but a example of how to respond. It's a communal lament. And as a reminder what lament is, lament is expressing grief and frustration because things are not the way they ought to be. Things are not the way they ought to be. It's not the way that God has designed it to be. It's not the way that gives God glory and makes people flourish. And when, when the world and when ministry and when church becomes like that, you lament because you want to express your grief and your frustration because things are not the way they ought to be. The world is broken and creation groans. And lament in scripture is this authentic and honest expression of grief, of groaning because, ah, it shouldn't be this way. And you pray and you ask questions and you cry out to God no matter how raw your grief is or how difficult the experience. 
Lament sometimes sounds like somebody has lost their faith. Why, God? Why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you coming? But the purpose behind that isn't because somebody lost faith. It's because the person still has it because they know the only way that this situation can be restored and built up and renewed is if God comes and he needs to come. If he doesn't show up, then this rubble, this heap, this ruin will still be there. There won't be any type of restoration, repentance, or renewal unless God shows up. And so there's this expression of grief and raw and authenticity that says, God, please show up. It seems you're not here, but we need you to be here and to do something about that. So within this psalm of lament, I want to highlight three ways that God's people are crying out to him. Number one, they're appealing to his name. Number two, they're asking for God's judgment. And number three, they're turning to God's mercy. Look at the first uh, verses that I read here, verses 9 through 10, that appeal to God's name. Help us, God our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? You see here how God's glory and name are connected together. God's ultimate aim is to uphold and display his glory, that is, his infinite love, his magnificent beauty, his holy perfections, that he wants to display those for his creation to see and to savor, and he also wants to show that glory through the work of redemption and judgment. So God's goal is for his name and glory to be known and to be enjoyed and to be revered and respected. And God's commitment to his name and glory is the greatest gift that he can give to his people because nothing else that he can give would satisfy our hearts and have our souls find their rest unless it's in God's glory and God's glory alone. But one of the realities of frustration and grief that's expressed in this psalm is there's a mocking of God's name and glory that's taking place. The nations who reject God and ruin God's place and people now are stepping back and asking, where is your God? Where is their God? I thought, is he going to show up? You're the people that claim to know the true God, the most powerful God, the God that loves you. But here you are, ruined and destroyed and defeated and helpless. Where is this God of yours? And there's this mocking that's going on because of the enemies of God. They are disrespecting and dishonoring the name of God and demeaning his glory. And the psalmist here is appealing to that. You ever been to a situation where there's something that you love that's been demeaned or dishonored, the name of something that's been disrespected? I, I, during the, the talk and challenge, I told you I had sermon illustrations from there. Uh, during the talk and challenge, I had one intentional mocking that I did that got me in a little bit of trouble, and then one that was intentional where I got a response from 3,200 teens that were a little bit salty towards me. So the first one, I was just telling this story about how I, I had discovered uh, kind of the first domino that, that fell that led to me discovering my, my cancer, and it was at Universal Studios. Just some of you very much know this story, and it was during the Harry Potter ride. And I say Harry Potter, and all of a sudden, everyone's freaking out. Ah! 
Harry Potter. Like I said, Jesus, and they're like, yeah, Jesus, but ah, Harry Potter, right? They got more excited about Jesus the way that the more the message went on. But at that moment, at that moment, I got like a response, right? That doesn't happen here very often, but there, people got people were talking to me, and it was awesome. I loved it. And so they're 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 they love Harry Potter. I'm like, hey, I love. Harry Potter as well, you know, it's up there with Star Wars. Both are much better than Marvel. And then all of a sudden, boo, like just angry, angry people, right? And, and I had to say, like, hey, good thing we're unified in Christ. We have our differences on this one. But at the end of the message, I had planned to talk about the difference, and I've done this on Sunday morning before too, the difference between a good opinion and good news. Opinion is up for debate. News is reporting on fact. The gospel is good news, not a good opinion. But what I often use as an illustration of about uh, opinion is like something that people debate. And so I use pizza as an example that some people think New York style pizza is better. Some people think deep dish is better, and I'm like, oh, clearly deep dish is better uh, than New York style pizza. New York style pizza is kind of mid, and then everyone's like, boo! Like, how dare you say that? And, and, but I you know, claim that the New York style pizza, it's, it's fine, but in the end, in the marriage supper of the lamb, on that table, <laughs> there will be deep dish, because the old things have passed away. Anyway, so that, that made some fans of New York style pizza a little bit upset. They didn't like that, right? Because I was dishonoring the name of New York style pizza, or earlier I was dishonoring the name of Marvel Comets. So you get the idea, you kind of get this pit in your stomach, like, no, this isn't right. Like, we're, you're dishonoring the name of something I enjoy. And here with God's people, the, there's these nations dis- dishonoring the name and the glory of God. And they're essentially saying, if we feel like this, how do you feel, God? Because you're more committed to your name and glory than anybody else. So they appeal to his commitment to his own name and glory. You can see that even in those opening verses in 1 through 4 that I already read, that, he's, that the psalmist is saying that this is your people. This is your temple. This is your land and your city. They, these belong to you. You've committed to them, and your glory and your name is attached to the, this place and this people. Yet these nations are dishonoring your name by dishonoring us and, and keeping us into this pile of ruin. The second thing we see in this psalm of lament is a, uh, is a request asking God for his judgment. Look at verses 5 through 6. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. Psalms of Lament, again, are using these questions to express their longing for God to act. And in these questions, God's people are calling on him to redirect his wrath away from them and to these nations that are destroying his good name. This request for God's judgment continues in verse 10. Before our eyes make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. May the groans of the prisoners come before you. With your strong arm, preserve those condemned to die. Pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the contempt that they hurled at you, Lord. And again, this language is jarring. How can somebody pray for such a thing? They shouldn't pray for such a thing if it's out of vengeance or spite or for some selfish reason. That's probably, that is definitely not what's going on here. What's going on here is they are not only appealing to God's glory, but they too 
desire this judgment to take place so that God can be glorified. They're committed to God's glory, and they want to see his glory shine. And so if you are a person that wants to see the name of God honored, then you would pray for God's judgment on anything that would dishonor the name of God because you want to see the people of God flourish and the church built up and not destroyed. But, and this gets us to our third point and third part of the prayer, this is a dangerous prayer to pray unless you also pray for the third point, mercy. Mercy. 